A few years ago, I was in Florida for a literary gathering. And suddenly, in the dead of night, the phone rang. And it was my wife, Hiroko, from her hometown of Kyoto, Japan, saying that her 91-year-old father, who had been bounding around Kyoto the previous week, had suddenly been taken into the hospital. Unfortunately, I had various commitments in Florida, and three days later, the phone rang again, and it was Hiroko saying that her father was gone. And I think a death in a family is always a wake-up call. It's always a cause for sober reflection, and I'm guessing that the emotions that follow upon a death are pretty much universal. But in Japan, the rights that follow upon a death are very particular. As soon as a body is cremated, the family gathers, often with delight and gratitude, wielding chopsticks, and picks out bones from a bed of ash to take back home as a relic. As soon as her father died, Hiroko had to buy a really expensive Buddhist name to protect him in the afterworld, and then an even more expensive gravestone, which at certain times in the year is encircled by lanterns, so that her father can come back down, look in on his much-missed loved ones for three days, and then find his way back to his home in the heavens. To this day, six years after the death, Every morning, Hiroko wakes up very early and she boils hot water to make her father's favorite cup of tea, gathers his favorite snack, and puts it out for him for his breakfast on the household altar, <laughs> which happens to be right next to the boombox on which she'll soon be blasting out uh, Green Day's 21st century nervous breakdown. And on her occasional days off from selling semi-punky English clothes in a department store, she gets into a bus, and then a train, and then another train, and then a third train for a two-hour trip each way to what in Japan is called a city of tomorrow, a graveyard to fill in her long-departed uh, grandmother and her late father on all the family news. In a practical sense, the minute her father died, she had to move her 86-year-old mother, whom her father had been looking after, into a nursing home. She had to get her brother to sign a will, which sounded very easy because her brother lives only 15 minutes away, but actually was really difficult because he had cut off the entire family 25 years before on the grounds that his sister had gotten a divorce. And our daughter, who had been living in Spain, came back with her Spanish boyfriend, but we didn't really know if she was back for good or if we would lose her soon forever to Europe. And so suddenly, overnight, we were in this wilderness of questions. And I returned in the autumn, and I always try really hard to be in Japan during the autumn, because the skies are brilliantly blue, absolutely cloudless, warmer than California into the early days of December. But underneath that blue, of course, are the scarlets and golds and lemon yellows of the turning trees. And autumn everywhere is a kind of 
poetry of elegy. But I think there's something in Japan about the mix of wistfulness and buoyancy that really pierces me. Uh, they say around Kyoto that life is a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. And I never feel the joy or the sorrow so piercingly as in the autumn. Uh, now, having said all that, if any of you were to visit us in our apartment, you would be horrified. It's a completely Western apartment. There's not a trace of tatami mat or exquisite shoji screen. And we live in a completely synthetic, modern Western suburb built in the 1970s more or less uh, to look like a Steven Spielberg stage set. Uh, literally, all the buildings are Western style. All the streets are completely straight. Uh, there's not a single shrine or temple in the entire neighborhood. And even the two main drags are called School Dory and Park Dory, using the English names, uh, I think, to persuade my mostly elderly neighbors that they've attained their dream of living in California. But our synthetic suburb is on the outskirts of the city of Nara, which was the capital of Japan in the year 710. And Nara today is a big, bustling city. It's got a population of half a million. But right at the heart of it, downtown, is the largest municipal park in all the country. And it's studded with temples and shrines, reflecting ponds, and most visibly, 1,200 wild deer who roam around untamed, pretty much ruling the place. Uh, literally, if you go to the five-story concrete and glass city hall, you'll find stags seated on the front steps. Uh, if you check into the fanciest hotel in Nara, you'll be greeted not by doorman, but by doe. And so I think for me, this image of a mock Californian suburb on the brink of somewhere really deep and ancient and filled with spirits is very much how I see Japan uh, even in the 21st century. Now, right across the street from our apartment for many years was a health club. And in those days, whenever my wife had a, a day off, she'd get up very early, she'd put on a headband and leggings, and she would go across the street for eight hours of furious kickboxing and weight training and jazzercise and high-intensity aerobics and yoga and you name it what. Um, as you can tell already, I can barely stand on this stage. I'm not exactly a paragon of athletic skill. But my wife is Japanese, which means she is graced with patience. And so, 17 years after we met, she came back one day and said, oh, didn't you used to play ping pong as a boy? And I confessed I had. And she said, oh, you know, they're offering ping pong in the health club now. Gentle hint. <laughs> um, I snarled something dismissive. But a few weeks later, I consented to go across the street uh, to inspect the ping pong. And as she'd imagined, maybe as she had feared, within three minutes, I was lost for life to ping pong. Uh, I have chosen to live in Japan for 32 years on a tourist visa. Uh, because I've never really wanted to engage with official corporate Japan, which seems to me to include a lot of the least interesting and imaginative sides of the culture. But I'm drawn towards everything private and domestic and interior 
which is endlessly rich in Japan in secrets and surprises. Suddenly, however, in the ping pong club, I was the lone foreigner in a group of 30 Japanese, mostly retired executives, grandmothers, a proprietress of a red light bar, a gangster or two. Uh, and at my towering five foot seven and a half, I was almost the tallest in the whole group. Uh, in my 50s, I was the youngest by decades. Uh, and when my wife occasionally looked in on the ping pong proceedings, uh, she realized to her alarm uh, that her a hairless, hapless husband was a kind of Justin Bieber figure. Um, <laughs> really, a teen idol by comparison with these octogenarians, who, who I think were quite happy to have a foreigner in their midst as a mascot. Uh, and so ping pong really became my way of trying to understand how to fit into Japan, which means, among other things, trying really, really hard with every breath, but never wanting to win. Uh, in our ping-pong club, we never play singles, only doubles. Uh, we change partners every five minutes, so if you do happen to lose, you're likely to win six minutes later. We play, if you can believe it, best of two sets, so often there's no loser at all. Uh, and occasionally, an 18-year-old, unsuspectingly, will show up in our group, and one of my 83-year-old friends will thrash him, uh, reminding us that Autumn has graces that even spring would envy. And so this season went on, which I describe in the book, Autumn Light, and I think we were all keenly aware that when a couple's been together for 60 years, if one of them goes, often the other departs very soon thereafter. So we were really on edge in terms of my mother-in-law. We were still waiting to see whether my missing brother-in-law would ever come back uh, to say goodbye to his late father, or hello to his mother, who was really failing fast. And I started thinking about my own mother, who was 82 years old, living alone on the top of a mountain at that time in California, often encircled by forest fire flames. And I realized that if I was tending to my mother-in-law, I was neglecting my mother. And of course, if I was looking after my mother, I was ignoring my mother-in-law. Every now and then, friends of mine will come from England or the US to visit, and they'll often ask me about religion in Japan. And I'm tempted to tell them that I think the real guiding religion in Japan is the seasons, which, of course, it's a religion without dogma, without exclusions, uh, but it's a teaching in changelessness and change. And certainly, every late November, when these tiny five-pointed maple leaves blaze most brilliantly. All my neighbors put on their Sunday best and they just flock out into the temple gardens and parks. I think much as people here might go to church um, to be joined in a congregation, uh, to be reminded of forces much larger than we are that put us in place, and maybe to catch slants of light amidst the coming darkness. And some of you may know that in Japan, there's one word used for the self that exists privately behind closed doors. And there's another completely different word for the self that's abroad and loose in the world. And I think it's assumed, maybe as in England, that there never need be any connection between the two. And I've always felt that a cherry blossom, which of course is bright and cheerful, frothy, a little bit erotic, that's the face that Japan wants to present to the outside world. But I think deep down at its heart, it's the maple leaf. And that 
mingling of radiance and melancholy. Uh, many of you may have seen the films of the great uh, Japanese director Ozu from the 1950s, Tokyo Story and Late Spring, many others. And you remember, if you have, that often there'll be a scene of a boisterous festival in the streets while somebody is weeping in the room next door. And I think that's exactly what Japan, especially in the autumn, is to me. To bring this towards a merciful close, uh, I think when I first arrived in Japan, like most of us, I was struck by everything that was zany and Western and modern, the kind of things we hear about so often in our media, uh, robots officiating over weddings and wild goth fashions. And the phenomenon which has really got a lot of play in the last few months here, whereby if an elderly couple doesn't have a daughter to look in on them, or if she's moved to Camden Town, they will literally hire an actress who every Sunday will come and knock on their door and say, hi, mom, hi, dad, I've really been missing you. Let's have a wonderful Sunday afternoon together. And they will suspend disbelief in order to fill that hole in their hearts. Uh, to us, I think it sounds often strange, but to the Japanese, it's a practical solution to a really searching question. And yet, of course, if you're living in a Japanese family or a community or neighborhood, you see it's the same story that you would find anywhere in the world, even if it's playing out in a different tongue. And so when I go to my local post office, I hear the women talking about waiting lists in nursing homes and how they feel really guilty if they move their mother to a nursing home, but really frazzled if they don't. And I suppose that human equivalent to climate change, whereby August visits in mid-February now, and more and more people are living longer than humans have ever lived before, but often for many years after their minds have begun to come apart. And so maybe... Um, I'll just end on a personal note by saying that uh, I grew up from the age of nine traveling six times a year back and forth between my school here in England and my parents' yellow house in the middle of hippie California. And, of course, in England, school was a rigorous training in skepticism <laughs> and not believing in anything at all. And, of course, young and fresh California was a constant invitation to basically believe in everything. And so, as with all of you, I'm sure, but maybe even more so, all my writing and all my life, I suppose, has been about trying to put realism and hope into the same sentence. And how do you live with both of them at the same time? Um, so, as Daisy was saying, the last time I was here at 5 by 15 was 11 years ago, I think, and I was talking about the Dalai Lama. I wrote a whole book about him because he seems to be a master of realism who never gives up on hope. And then I came to that same theme almost through the back door, through the renegade but deeply compassionate English novelist Graham Greene, who I think of as really an undeluded observer of the modern world who famously never entirely gave up on faith. And in this book called Autumn Light, I'm constantly trying to put these dazzling blue skies together with the turning leaves that speak of death and the coming of the cold and the dark. 
And one day I was sitting on our little terrace outside the apartment, and I was reading the autobiography of the endlessly wise uh, Edith Wharton. And on the very last page of her autobiography, looking back on her rich life of 60 years or more, she said, though the years are sad, the days have a way of being jubilant. And I thought, well, maybe that is a step towards the answer. Thank you.